0: Well, it's good to be with you today. Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke. This afternoon's text comes from Luke chapter one, verses one to 25. If you join me in your Bibles, we are beginning a new series today looking at the gospel according to Luke. Luke. With God's help, let's go ahead and turn our hearts to hear his word, verses one to 25. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. and though disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Maybe you're the type when you pick up a new book to read that you are tempted to skip over what we sometimes describe as the front matter. If you want a real fancy word, the prolegomena, the introduction, the preface, the foreword, the dedication, all of that stuff. You want to get past that to get to what really counts, to the good stuff. If Luke was here with us, he would say, don't do that. Don't skip over that introductory material because it is here that you find what is so vital to know in order to discern what it is that Luke is trying to get across in everything else that's going to follow. It's here in the introduction that Luke communicates what his intentions are, what spurred him on what motivated him motivated him in his writing most of all what was his purpose why did he set out to write what he did you need to know those things if you're going to get a handle on everything else that follows Uh, Luke starts off by saying that there's been a bunch of other people who have sat down to do what he has done and what he's about to set out to do himself. He's not an innovator. Uh, There's nothing novel about what he is undertaking, but he has been caught up with the same story that so many others before him have. What he describes is the things that have been accomplished among us. A couple of things I want you to notice about that. First, the things Luke is speaking of are things that have been handed down to him by others, by what he describes as eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Almost certainly he's thinking of people like the apostles here. Luke was not one of the the 12. He's something of a second generation believer and yet, At the very same time, he's able to speak in contemporary terms about the things that have been accomplished among us. Luke includes himself there in that number. Why is that the case? Well, it all gets down to what is entailed in those things, those things that have been accomplished We might make the case that the word accomplished really is is too weak of a rendering here. You see, brothers and sisters, Luke doesn't mean for us to understand merely that things have happened. He doesn't mean for us to understand merely that things have taken place on some chronological timeline, that time has been Ticking by and you can mark them out on this timeline. The word speaks of fulfillment. Uh, It's the very same word we're gonna hear the Lord Jesus Christ use in chapter four, where he walks into the synagogue and he picks up the Isaiah scroll and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has sent me to proclaim liberty to uh, or good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus sits down and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's the very same word that we're looking at here in our text, this is what Luke is getting at when he talks about things that have been accomplished. He's talking about things that are fulfilled. So already, church, you see that he is framing things in terms of prophetic fulfillment in the very first breath. God has brought his redemptive purposes to perfect fulfillment in the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection and ascension, which is what allows Luke to say, these things have been fulfilled among us. In other words, Luke's, his removal, historically speaking, however short a period of time that might have been doesn't exclude him from the implications of those things of which he speaks. And so it is with us. Inasmuch as as we look to the Lord Jesus in faith, we can take the very same words to our lips and speak today to one another about the things that have been accomplished among us. They're things that have been fulfilled among us. They've had bearing in our lives, amen? They've had implications, eternal implications in our lives. In verse three, Luke talks about his method for writing, and you'll notice he places a great deal of emphasis on the accuracy and the care with which he undertook his efforts. He says, it seemed good to me also... Having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. So his is a, a, a historical investigation. He has it as its as his intention to track down what he calls all things. This isn't an, a casual inquiry inquiry. It is a thoroughgoing exhaustively detailed fact-finding mission. And he's gonna look at all things closely. What you're holding in your hands, in the gospel according to Luke, is the product of serious, scholarly, careful, painstaking research. Some of you might know that Luke was a physician. Between the gospel according to Luke and its sequel, the book of of Acts, you can find uh, something close to 400 words that are common to ancient Greek uh, medical textbooks. Whereas Matthew or Mark might say that Simon's mother-in-law was sick with a fever, Luke was careful to note that it was a very high fever. When the other gospel writers talk about a man with a withered hand, Luke is careful to denote that it was his right hand. Now why is that important? Well, he writes with an eye for detail. He writes with an eye for for precision. and he talks about following all things closely for some time past or from the beginning. And the idea here is that he has gone back to the very beginning of the work of God to to its very earliest days. And this is where Luke differs from the, the other gospel writers in that he goes back and he follows the story of Jesus Christ from the beginning, actually even before the beginning, before the time of his birth, and then he traces things through all the way to his ascension. And that sets Luke apart from the rest. It's not that his gospel account is better. It isn't that others haven't compiled narratives of the same, but his account is especially encyclopedia, encyclopedic and, and it's especially meticulous uh, in, in his approach, the way he, he, he writes things down. All of that to say, this is not some kind of half-baked shoddy piece of work that you hold in your hands. It's an orderly account. Why does does Luke place so much stress on his methodology? Well, you can find it right there in verse four. He says that that he writes that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He's writing to Theophilus this is someone whose name means friend of God or lover of God. Some have wondered whether that is a kind of generalized term, uh, the way uh, a, a pastor might say uh, beloved to a, to a congregation. I don't think so. For one, uh, Theophilus was a, a fairly common, uh, proper name. Uh, during this time, during the first century, you notice how he uses uh, the honorific. He, he says, most excellent Theophilus when he addresses him. That, that gives you the indication that perhaps this was someone with an important status, uh, maybe someone who held uh, an important position in the sev- civil government. We know that Paul uses the same uh, sort of address with uh, Felix, he says, most excellent Felix, Uh, Theophilus could have been in a similar position. He could have been uh, Luke's patron, someone who funded Luke's writing and provided the the financial resources for the the, the paper and for for Luke's time. But you notice here, he's very careful to note in, in the beginning of verse four that Theophilus is someone who has been taught these things. He's already been taught some measure of what Luke is going to go into further detail about. It it, it becomes apparent that, that Theophilus has some understanding of the Christian message. He's been acquainted with the teachings of Jesus Christ, and at the very least, he lacks some confidence in his understanding of who Jesus Christ is. In that way, he very—he—he—he—he he, he, he shares much in common with someone like Apollos in, Luke, in uh, Acts chapter 18. Apollos, the Bible says, was someone who was competent in the scriptures. That's a good word. It's not exactly a, a um, rousing endorsement, but he was competent. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord but he knew only the baptism of John. And so he needed Priscilla and Aquila to come and take him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. Well, something similar perhaps is going on here with Theophilus. Theophilus has room to grow. Now, what I want you to notice though is that he has room to grow not just in his knowledge, but in his faith. Luke is careful to to delineate this. He says, I write that you may have not knowledge, but certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So is it possible that you have a man here who to some degree is languishing in doubt and despair? You think he might've been struggling with unresolved questions concerning the nature of the Christian faith. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of position? Could he have had trouble uh, reconciling the, 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 the victory and the glory of what has been revealed in Jesus Christ and the, the suffering and the affliction that he perhaps could have been facing in his own world? Maybe he began to think to himself, well, is following Jesus really all that it's cracked up to be? Could it have been deeper than that? Might Theophilus have been distressed over where he stood with God, where he would spend eternity? Well, Luke makes no bones about the fact that he has an agenda when he writes. He has an agenda in view to bring certainty, confidence, assurance to the heart of Theophilus. His mission is not just to help this man accumulate more data points in his mind about Jesus, but to grow in his confidence concerning those things, to see his faith strengthen. So certainty or assurance concerning the things that he has been taught is Luke's stated aim, which, brothers and sisters, just to state the obvious means that certainty is not somehow beyond our grasp. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Our faith can waver, it can strengthen and it can decline, it can go up and down. Our confession says it may often be attacked and weakened. Every believer can find themselves walking through seasons like that, that man who came crying out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief knowing both of those dynamics simultaneously within his life. But when we think about knowing God, when we think about being possessors of the promises entailed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, confidence is something he wants us to have. Assurance is something the Lord wants us to know. Now what is the means to that end of gospel Assurance, how does that come? Persuasive proclamation is Luke's answer. He writes to persuade, and he contends that the material that he is going to present will lead to that end, that it will lead to that certainty that he longs to see Apollos or uh, Theophilus know. Brothers and sisters, I make no bones about the fact that I have the same agenda to see you know full assurance of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke makes an implicit claim for the reliability of the book that he is writing. Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, the whole glory of the Christian gospel is that it gives us knowledge. It claims to be the revelation of God. It gives that unique and definite authority and Christians should know exactly where they are and how they should stand. They should have been emancipated and delivered out of the realm of tentative conclusions. How many of you have lived for seasons of your life in the realm of tentative conclusions? Just a kind of foggy haze about where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer to weak or floundering faith is not to somehow try to work up the gumption from within. It is not to try to find some inner reserve of strength. It is not to, quote, just believe. If I could stress anything, it would be to say it is not to take a leap of faith. That is the farthest uh, idea from the understanding of the, the true nature of Christian faith. The starting point, Luke would say, would be to come face to face with the facts about Jesus Christ and to do so in a systematic, thoroughgoing, exhaustive sort of way. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Steep yourself in the story of the Lord Jesus Christ from start to finish. Get to know him. We too must face the scriptures' claims about Jesus. We too must come to a determination on where we stand with him. Now, church, it is more than a little bit ironic that given Luke's stated purpose here at the beginning to see Theophilus possess this certainty concerning the things uh, that he has been taught, that this, this whole story starts off with an old man battling doubt and unbelief. It's not entirely fair, it doesn't tell quite the whole story. If you look at verses five and six, uh, you see faithfulness, first of all, you see faithfulness and obedience and godliness in Zechariah and Elizabeth. That's what is brought to our attention at the forefront. Uh, forefront. Look at verse six, and they were both righteous before God. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Oh, for a testimony like that, even to our old age. Zechariah was a priest. Uh, He married a priest's daughter. So here is a couple who are doubly blessed. They have spent their whole lives living in the service of the Lord. They have walked with him. They knew God's word. Uh, They submitted their lives to it. It was evident and the whole way that they lived and then you get to verse 7 where it says but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they both were advanced in years and so the text opens with this apparent incongruity This apparent dissonance between the lives of spiritual devotion that you see in Zechariah and Elizabeth on the one hand, and the apparent absence of divine favor in this particular area of their lives on the other. If you're familiar with some of the major storylines in the Old Testament, you might start to have bells going off in your head at this point. When you, when you open the pages of Luke chapter one, you might think of women like Leah and Rachel. You remember Rachel's words? Give me children or I shall die. They were both barren until the Lord opened their wounds. Hannah and Elkanah in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. You remember how Hannah is there and she is pouring out her heart before the Lord. Her her lips are moving. Nothing is coming out. You remember how Eli just mocks her. She is in such distress over her barrenness before the Lord. Manoah and his wife, they are childless until Samson is born. But more than anything, it is Abraham and Sarah that come to mind here. Like Abraham and Sarah, not only were Zechariah and Elizabeth barren, but they were both advanced in years. They were old. They were past the point of having children until the Lord came and he performed a miracle. And remember God's words there, is anything too hard? for the Lord. Is anything too hard for the Lord? So you have a story in Luke chapter 1 whose whose resonance with these other stories primes the pump. It gets the reader ready for for this idea that perhaps God is up to something. Perhaps God is going to do something marvelous. The stage has been set for divine reversal. And you may already find yourself singing Hannah's tune, The Baron Has Born Seven. The Lord lifts the needy up from the the ash heap and makes them to sit in places of honor. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. First, you have a story that begins with brokenness and sorrow and despair and social disgrace. You have two saints, two dear ones, who have been living through what has been a lifelong child. Luke has a peculiar interest in stories like this, stories that take people that are in some way on the fringes of society, those who are on the down and out, those who are ranked least likely to succeed in their class, and he pulls them in, and he makes them the center of the story. Of course, really, this is God who is, who is doing this. If you look at the beginning of verse five, uh, you see Herod, the king of Judea, the greatest man living at the time, and then in a blink of an eye, he is pushed aside to make way for, for who really counts, an old couple living in the hill country of Judah. That's who really matters, friends. An old, barren couple who seemingly has nothing to offer to the Lord, but who will nevertheless become the fodder for God's glorious power to be revealed. I trust that if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can see yourself in some way here in this story. Paul did, When he was talking to the church at Corinth, he said, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And he is still working in the same way today. He is still turning upside down the lives of those who who recognize themselves to be in this category of of absolutely, abjectly weak and needy. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now, Notice also that Luke introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth's problem in verse seven without ever suggesting that the painful reality that they are living with in any way does violence to the truth of verse six. What I mean is this. There is no indication that Elizabeth's barrenness is in any way result of a failure on her part. On the contrary, the text actually holds her up as an as a, as a exemplary, exemplary model of godliness, godly obedience. This is very important because one of the curses that came with uh, covenant disobedience under the old covenant was barrenness. But church it is not the case that you can can always discern in reverse the reason for for this sort of thing. Trying to draw a straight line from particular suffering to particular sin is a very dangerous proposition. You cannot do that. You remember how Jesus' disciples come up to, to him in John chapter nine. They just seen this man who was blind from birth and they come up to the Lord with a very straightforward question. They say, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Here we have an obvious case of the judgment of God. Something that would only fall on someone that was in egregious sin. Now, it's just a matter of finding out whether it was him or his parents. Simple as that, right? Wrong. Wrong. What did Jesus say? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It was for the glory of God. It was for his glory, and so it was with Zechariah and Elizabeth. God had bigger plans than anyone could see. I think it's worth drawing out that their great burden, notwithstanding, this couple, they're living lives of active devotion and service to God in the midst of their affliction. They have not let their trial prove to be an obstacle to righteousness. They haven't set the law of God aside because frowning providences have come into their lives. Rather, they're walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. What a testimony this is. What a testimony. Now, this is the background against which we come into verse eight, the appearance of the angel to Zechariah. In verse eight, we find Zechariah serving in what would have been one of his annual two-week stints of service at the temple. At this point in time, you have something like 18,000 priests uh, in greater Jerusalem. Of that incredibly vast number, we find this old man serving in what would have been the greatest privilege of his entire life in terms of his priestly service. Twice a day, lots would be cast to determine who would get to go in and enter the holy place and burn the incense before the altar. It was an honor that you were only permitted to to carry out one time in your entire life. The lot fell to Zechariah. Into the temple, he goes. Outside, everyone is praying. In other words, the actions inside the temple uh, represent symbolically what is happening outside the temple with the multitude. Uh, The prayers of the saints are ascending before the Lord. Well, it's at this point there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. This is what the angel says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, beloved, just mark in your minds that prayer may be uh, answered, though it is a long time in coming. You have to assume that Zechariah and Elizabeth, after some time had passed, after they had been married, had had begun to grow concerned uh, over their desire to have children, and they had rightly turned their hearts to the Lord. They began to pray and they, sought the face of God, they pled with him, they took their cares to the Lord, and for all appearances, those, those prayers had been offered in vain. Zechariah's astonishment at what the angel says here seems to bolster that idea that, that they had probably left those dreams to die, but God had not forgotten their cry. So there is here an encouragement for us to go on praying in persistent prayer, whatever the the, the odds may seem to be. Do we pray because the odds are good? Isn't that the first principle of prayer anyway? That we lift up our souls to the God of heaven to do what is impossible for us to do on our own. We cry out to him precisely because the raw materials are not in place. They're not there. We need his intervention. Are there lost souls in your life for whom you are are tempted to stop praying? Your prayer doesn't seem to have availed. You're tempted to just forget about them. Are you ever tempted to pray for little more than what your natural eyes can seem to envision? Has God's apparent silence caused your resolve in seeking the face of God to simply wither away? Do you wonder whether prayer makes any difference at all? Beloved, we pray to the one with whom all things are possible. So go on praying. Go on praying. Seek his face. My house shall be called a house of prayer, the Lord Jesus said. Zechariah's prayers, however far back they had been, had not fallen on deaf ears. Isn't that wonderful? In God's own way, in his, in his own time, he had come to answer them. Verse 14 says, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth in other words, this wouldn't just be the, the kind of ordinary joy that we all have at the birth of a child. Uh, we all delight at the birth of a new baby. I mean, that, that, that is, that's something to rejoice over. But here, many will rejoice at his birth. The impact of this child's arriving will be, Uh, Will bring with it a kind of joy that goes far beyond Zechariah and Elizabeth's wildest imagination. Why? Well, it says, For he will be great before the Lord. He will be great before the Lord. In other words, he will live out his life before the presence of the Lord. He will live to serve the Lord. He lives at the command of the Lord. You notice how special requirements are are given there. He mustn't drink wine or strong drink. Priests weren't allowed to drink alcohol while they were on temple service. Uh, The same was true of Nazarites. So you get the impression here, here is someone who is going to be specially consecrated unto the service of the Lord, specially set apart unto God most high. Ephesians 5 says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And you see that here in that John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, Gabriel begins to spell out what John's ministry is going to look like in verse 16. And these are words that clearly allude to the closing words of the Old Testament. I want to read from Malachi chapter four and verses four and five. I'm sorry, Malachi chapter four, verses five and six. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Remember, Zechariah is a priest. He would have known God's word. He would have known these words. He would have had these words rushing to his mind as the angel began to speak. 400 years have passed, and God is about to make good on his promise. God's word hasn't fallen to the ground. Zechariah's son is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. His ministry is going to be one of spiritual reformation. The Bible here says that he will turn many of the children of of Israel to the Lord their God, which means that many had turned away from God at this point. A season of repentance is going to accompany John's arrival, the embrace of his message. That includes uh, a time of reconciliation, both to God and to man. He talks about the, the, the restoration of families, receiving the word of God, turning toward the Lord. That has effect on the horizontal plane, doesn't it? It affects relationships in the here and now, hearts are turned toward one another. Healing is brought to bear, even within families, when the gospel is received. This is one of the evidences that the, that the word of God has been received within the heart. How will John accomplish his task? says that he's going to go about his ministry in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now think about this, church. When you think about Elijah, what comes to mind you think about great signs and wonders. These tremendous, mighty deeds. You think about him stretching himself out upon a dead widow's son, raising him to life again. You think about him pouring water on the altar and then calling down fire on the prophets of Baal. All of those, those wonderful miracles, visible uh, demonstrations of power. Now what does John the Baptist's ministry look like? Well, strangely enough, there are no records of miracles in the traditional way of thinking. But there is power nonetheless. Where is the spirit and power of Elijah? It's in the proclamation of the word that John brings. It's there as he points listeners to the Lord Jesus Christ saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's where the power of God is made manifest in the ministry of John the Baptist, in the proclamation of the word. John the Baptist would be the forerunner of this one who would come to suffer and to die for sinners. In Malachi chapter three and verse one, the Lord says, behold I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now this does a couple of things. For one, it it helps us to understand the greatness of John. John has a wonderful, great ministry. He will be great before the Lord. He's the forerunner of the Messiah, is a very important ministry, but it also has a a way of highlighting his subordination to one greater than John. John said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. John said, he must increase. I must decrease. John's arrival is coming to prepare the way for the one who is the way himself. Now, how does Zechariah respond to this? He responds with unbelief. Look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So this this man, who has been called righteous before God, who is walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, is suddenly gripped by doubt and unbelief. He looks at the facts and says, how can this be? I'm an old man, J.C. Ryle talks about the power of unbelief in a good man. Zechariah is a priest and a good one, but he is not insusceptible to unbelief, to the sin of unbelief. What a great sin unbelief is. It is the greatest of all sins before the face of God. Zechariah says, I'm an old man. The angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand before the presence of God. Do you think it pierced Zechariah's heart to hear Gabriel's name? It wasn't till that point that Gabriel uttered his name that Zechariah knew who was speaking. Do you think that it pierced Zechariah's heart to, to think back to the middle chapters of the book of Daniel? The only other place where Gabriel's name is mentioned in the scriptures and to think of Daniel's fidelity to the Lord, living in a time of exile, living when his faith was being so pressed in upon uh, just in, in the land that he was living and yet he stood steadfast, clinging to the Lord and to his word, Gabriel, who stood in the presence of God was sent to bring this good news. The word there is gospel. The question for Zechariah was simply would he believe it? Would he give himself over to doubt and unbelief or would he trust in the one who issued the promise? These are still the kinds of questions that are prompted in the heart of everyone who hears the good news of the gospel today. For us, the question is not whether we'll put our trust in the promise of John's appearing. It isn't even whether we will believe that Christ came. He has come. The question is our relationship to him. It is the question of where you stand concerning the things that you have been taught. Where does your faith lie? It's not a question that you can stand removed from. It's not a question you can try to run and hide from. It's not something that you can try to remain neutral on. There is only faith and unbelief. Where do you stand? There are consequences to unbelief. The good news that Gabriel brought wasn't something that was there for Zechariah to just accept or reject however he felt about things. Gabriel came as a representative of God and the rejection of God's word would bring with it certain consequences, as it will for everyone who disbelieves. That is true, brothers and sisters, in an ultimate sense. For everyone who rejects the gospel, of Jesus Christ is true, temporally speaking, for God's people. Peter says, judgment begins at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Zechariah knew something of that temporal Judgment, that temporal discipline in his life. God disciplines those who are in his household. He disciplines those that he loves. Every son that he loves, he chastises. Every son that he receives, Hebrews 12 says. For Zechariah, that meant that he would be unable to speak until the day that these things came to pass. Gabriel says, you did not believe my words. Now you can see here how Zechariah's muteness was both a judgment and a grace. His inability to speak was both an act of discipline. It was also the answer to his question. And verse 18, how can this be? Zechariah is saying, I want a sign Gabriel says, I'll give you a sign. But church notice this. It was through this season of judgment that he was going to come to learn something of what his own son's ministry was going to bring, a return to the Lord in faith and in trust. Isn't that often the case, that it is through the chastisement God brings into Our lives. It's through the pressures that he places in our lives. It's through the discipline that he so carefully and lovingly meets out in our lives that we are drawn near to him, that hearts of faith are worked within us. It's against that backdrop that you have this believing joy of Elizabeth. So wonderfully juxtaposed in verse 25. She says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. What do you have? A simple, trusting, childlike faith. So we're invited to consider what kind of response the word of God has in our own life. How will we respond? Father in heaven, we bow our hearts before you this day. God, we thank you for your kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you for your patience that leads us to repentance. Lord, we can all feel the the feebleness and the frailty of our faith, how slow we are to to understand those things that have been uh, spoken to us, how quick we are to doubt and disbelieve your word. And so God, we pray that you would use this word to work in our hearts. Lord, help us to take you at your word. I pray that you would grant to us hearts of childlike faith, grant to us the grace to believe Lord, give us a hunger to know you. As you have revealed yourself in your word, Lord, give us a hunger to know you, that our confidence might grow. Lord, I thank you that Jesus has died and rose again. We praise you for his crucifixion and resurrection. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord, we praise you that you've promised to forgive anyone that comes trusting in your son, and that he has promised to come again. Now, Lord, be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.